We'd like to bring you news about missionaries that Hilltop supports, just so that we have them kind of fresh in our minds and we can pray for them. This morning, we're going to talk about one that you may have heard about the most and know the least. Uh, that's because they live up in the middle of the boonies in British Columbia. Uh, Dick and Shirley Walker have been missionaries to the carrier or the Dalek people for 58 years. Wrap your mind around that one. And when you look up uh, in the dictionary under words like commitment and perseverance, there's going to be their picture right there. God called them, and most of the time they've been working with uh, um, the Wycliffe uh, Bible translators. Now they're with a group called Christian Education Society. And, and we've got Dick and Shirley here via video, and they're going to explain in their own words. This, this six-minute video covers those 58 years for you. ministry and we're excited about some current projects. Back in 1961 both Shirley and I felt the Spirit of God calling us to translate the Word of God into an indigenous language that did not have the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. It is written in the Word of God the incredible love of God which offers us a salvation by faith and faith alone in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. After much prayer, we felt the Lord was leading us to provide the Word of God for the carrier people who live in the central part of beautiful British Columbia, Canada. The task before us was enormous. Learning the language, developing a modern alphabet to be used in schools, producing literacy materials, and translating the Word of God into the carrier language. The carrier language program was accepted and brought into all of the schools where there are carrier speakers. God then led us to move south to Williams Lake. We were able there to follow up with a survey of the Southern Carrier dialect and were able to adapt the Central Carrier New Testament into the Southern Carrier dialect and publish that New Testament in 2002. This was followed with the translation and publishing of the book of Genesis into that dialect. During this time, we were also working further north with central carrier believers to translate the book of Genesis into the central carrier dialect. With the carrier scripture now available, we are praising the Lord that there are carriers who are responding to the word of God. 
1997, right before we moved to Williams Lake, we were asked by a local Christian radio station to provide them with two carrier Bible studies a month. During this time, I've been able, in the Southern Carrier dialect, to cover the theme of creation to Christ. I have just now completed verse-by-verse study in the magnificent book of Acts. All of these studies that were sent to the radio station have also been put on CDs and mailed free of charge to the carriers who are out of the range of the radio station broadcasts. We are now out of the Central Carrier New Testaments and the book of Genesis. They need to be reprinted. But before we do that, I am absorbed with the huge task of carefully working through a powerful software program called Paratex. Our skilled Wycliffe colleagues are providing great help as I work through the program. Just recently, God provided another incredible opportunity with the University of Northern British Columbia. Excellent contact had been made with the radio manager at UNBC who heard about our work. At his request, we sent him over 100 Southern Carrier Bible Study CDs as he wanted to archive them for the university. God used this contact for the station manager to offer to us at a reduced rate the facilities of his radio station so we could record the central book of Genesis. Both Nellie Prince and Yvonne Pierre-Roy, who are Central Carrier folks, live in Prince George. Back in 2004, when we were still in Fort St. James, both had worked with me on the recording of the revised Central Carrier Bilingual Dictionary. Nellie and Yvonne are doing an excellent job in the recording and getting this book of Genesis ready for distribution. With the training and experience they now have, this has made possible the opportunity for them to do future recordings in Carrier. It is a high privilege to be a chosen servant of the Most High God who called us to labor with him in his vineyard in order to give the Carrier Nation his word. His calling was written in our hearts. All he required of us was a willing heart to walk with him in a very challenging journey and to believe he was able to bring us all the way. We hope this will give you some insights into our life with the carrier people. Well, today we are encouraged with the encouragement that we read in Joshua chapter 13 when God said to Joshua, you are old and advanced in years, and yet there remains very much land to be possessed. We ask you to pray with us that we can hear the voice of God who has called us to the carrier nation about this land yet to be possessed. Now you do the math and that puts uh, Dick and Shirley in their mid-80s and uh, they haven't retired. And uh, here is Dick's cousin. (laughs) 
Hello, everybody. <laughs> no, I just wanted to share uh, just briefly. Don said we don't have a lot of time, which I understand, but uh, I'm sure all of you, if you go back in time and find and remember when you became a Christian, somebody had influence, and my cousin uh, Bud had a great influence. I always get choked up about this. Uh, he invited me to come to church. I was in high school. I heard the gospel preached every week, and eventually I accepted the Lord as my Savior. He was my mentor. He brought me along the way. And early in, in, at Hilltop, back in 1988, we, uh, we didn't support any missionaries. And I remember Don and uh, Paul Miller, Mary Lee's father, we talked about supporting missionaries. And I said, well, I don't know about supporting, but we could invite my cousin to come and speak, which he did. And Paul and uh, Don recommended that we, we begin supporting them in a small way, which we have for probably 25 years now. Uh, when I went to the church in Oakland, Shirley was Ruth's Sunday school teacher. <laughs> so that's another point. And the other thing is he introduced me to Ruth. So uh, we've only been married for 58 years, so I think he did a good thing. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. But you know God is, is so faithful. One by, <clears throat> one by one, my whole family came to know the Lord and are serving the Lord today. Two of them are in heaven. Three, well, my mom and dad, too, uh, are in heaven with the Lord. But uh, we still, I still have a sister, uh, and she'll be visiting me tomorrow, actually, from Montana. So God bless, and thank you, Don, for the opportunity. You bet. And, uh, you know, you, you think of the fruit that uh, is born by Dick and Shirley's ministry, and, and only eternity will show that. And he's been laboring, as they, they've been laboring their entire life to translate God's word into a language whose speakers number in the thousands, not the millions. That, to me, just speaks of God's love for individuals, for you and me, and that, that they would do that so that these, this small group of Native Canadians would understand God's word in their own language. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, Dick and Shirley for their example of perseverance and faithfulness. Thank you that uh, <laughs> for the fruit that their ministry is born in Jim and uh, Ruth's life and in the lives of countless others. Um, Lord, help us to just pray for them, for the radio broadcast of your word. And uh, eternity will reveal the fruit. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Today we're going to be uh, looking at Ezekiel uh, chapter 11. So if you want to go there, Ezekiel chapter 11. Um, and uh, I know some of you have been with us, some of you have not. And uh, the way we've been going through these two different series, Joel's been working his way through Romans, and I've been working my way through Ezekiel. Um, Joel and Mary Lee are on a trip back east right now, so you get a little bit more of me than you do of him. Sorry, you have to put up with me. 
Um, but uh, next week, we'll, Don will teach, and we will begin an Easter series. Uh, so we'll have a message on Palm Sunday next Sunday. And then Good Friday, we'll, there'll be a service there that Don is going to put together. And then Easter Sunday, myself and Ben Lynn are going to be sharing. Um, ben will be here from Ireland, and the two of us are going to work through a passage in 1 Peter together uh, that really uh, explains the great need of the resurrection and the goodness of God and His kind intentions towards us. Uh, so that's kind of what's coming up, and then after that we'll jump back into the book of Ezekiel and we'll work our way through uh, several chapters at a time uh, at, at, when we get back at this. But right now, Ezekiel chapter 11, and uh, as we've been going through this, what we've seen is a handful of different visions. Um, Ezekiel is in a second vision that he has here from God where God actually removes him from exile, not physically, but spiritually removes him from exile in, uh, in Babylon and takes him to Jerusalem. Now, there was a group of uh, people from the northern kingdom, the, the nation of Israel split in two, and the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and some of those people were carried off into captivity, and then the Babylonians capture uh, the Assyrians. They conquer them, and so, but you still have a group of um, uh, Israelites, Jewish people, that are in exile. Then added to the exile are the group of people that Ezekiel is a part of. Uh, the, the southern nation of Judah uh, kind of went back and forth between uh, obeying Egypt and obeying Babylon and fighting with the Assyrians and fighting with Babylon and uh, never really able to stand on their own. Um, and in and, and one of the cases where this takes place, Babylon is, uh, they're controlling Judah, they're controlling Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is fighting back against them. And they remove uh, the influential people from Jerusalem. And Ezekiel and his family is part of that group. So Ezekiel is removed from Jerusalem, taken into captivity in Babylon, but in these chapters, God is carrying him spiritually back to Jerusalem to show him some things. And as we've been going through this second vision, what we've seen is that God is showing Ezekiel that the leadership of this nation does not want God. Um, they're, they're, they are stiff-arming God, they are pushing God away, and they are headed in the opposite direction of God. And when we, what we find is that at the end of a, of a lifestyle where God is uh, pushed away and we walk the opposite direction, it's not that we don't meet Him, it's that when we do meet Him, it's a regrettable time. Okay, And that's what is happening for the people within the nation of Judah. They have walked away from God for centuries, literally centuries. They've walked away from God, and it's progressively gotten worse and worse, the distance between them and God. And they've reached a point where God is going to step in, and He's going to say, we're going to meet at this point in time, and it is going to be a time of regret for you. Okay, And that's really what's going on. And, and so what I want you to ask in this, in this chapter, the question I want you to ask in this chapter it's how does one get saved? Okay, We're going to see in this chapter that the people think that they have the ability to save themselves. Uh, the, but the question is, how does one get saved? And then the other question is, do all paths lead to God? Do they really? Um, I've had several conversations with people. My kids are on sports teams, and I've coached some of these teams. And so you get to know the parents, and you get to know different people. And one of the occasions, we're standing around hanging out, and uh, I'm talking with one of the parents of, uh, one, of the, one of the kids that's on one of my... I'm being vague because I don't want to just say this person's name. But I'm talking to a parent, um, and, and we ha we're having a discussion about spirituality, right? He asked me who I am and what do I do, and I share that I'm a pastor. And then he shares his, up his, up his upbringing and uh, how his, his upbringing, they went to church a little bit, but it was kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they got to try different things. And he thought maybe he believed in the Christian worldview. And then he says, but then I went to university. 
And when I went to university, they shared with me how all religions do the same thing. And so the point that he said that I've come to is I just believe that we all find our way to God. For me, it's more about being in nature and meeting God in nature, and I can see him in the way that he's created things, and, and I affirm that. He's like, yes, you can. That, that's a good point, but that's not it, right? But for him, that was, he was saying, that was my path. that's my path to God. I believe that everybody has a path that leads to him, but my path is really more of one where I experience him through his creation. And, and I think that other people could experience him in a lot of different ways. And then, you know, the question then becomes, well, how, how do you become right with this God? He didn't really have an answer for that. It was more of, then it became more about his morals and his upright living and how well he was doing with his marriage and how well he was doing raising his kids and how well he had done at his job. And it was all about his moral standing, what he determined to be good. And really, that's kind of not that different from what the people of Judah and what they're doing here. Let me read this chapter to you. We'll, we'll break it into a couple of different chunks, but let's, uh, we'll, start with, well, we'll start with verse 1 because it wouldn't make sense to do otherwise. <laughs> chapter 11. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. And behold, there were 25 men at the entrance of the gate, and among them was Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of ben Beniah leaders of the people. Now, if you're like me, if you remember back in chapter 8, there was another Jazaniah. And I thought, man, it must be the same one because there's no way two people named their son that. And it's, there's more than one. Um, the, his dad is a different dad. And then you have Pelatiah, the son of Beniah. What we have here is there's these 25 people and they are leaders of the people. Um, because because the, the influential group of leadership within the church was, or within the church, within the nation was removed to Babylon, a new group of leaders rises up, and these are some of those men, okay? And here's what they're doing. He said to me, Son of man, these are men who devise iniquity and give evil advice to the city, who say the time is near to build houses, the city is a pot, and we are the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them, Son of man, prophesy. So these leaders, he describes them as people who devise iniquity. Uh, the word devise, it means to like weave, or basically they're, they're creating ways to embrace their sinful state. That's, that's what these guys, how God describes them. He says these are people who weave together manners of life in which you can embrace the sinful state that you have apart from God, right? As we've gone through this, we've seen iniquity. When you see the word iniquity within the Scriptures, it's talking about our, the core of who we are. Um, there, there's, there's the core of who we are that is sinful. There's, uh, we're described as rebellious um, which, or, or transgressors, which means rebellious. And we're, there's sins that are described, which are the individual acts against God and His law. Okay? Here he's saying these are people who come up with ways for you to embrace a fallen nature. That's what they're doing. They, these are people that lead the nation, and they are coming up with ways for you to embrace the fact that you don't want God. The fact that at your core, if we left you to yourself, you would never, ever seek Him out. At your core, uh, you would never move towards God on your own, but instead it requires an action from Him to initiate relationship with you. And he's saying that these are people who devise ways for you to stay in a state of iniquity, a state where you reject God and His laws and you'd never find Him on your own. This is the leadership of this nation at this point in time. 
Now, you can look around our culture and you can find places where this is exactly the same. There are people who weave, they create ways for us to say, I will stand on my own two feet with no need of God. The book of Romans would say that there, uh, when people finally reach a, a distance that's really far from God, uh, Paul says that, that, uh, that we, they, they come up with ways to sin and they give hearty approval to everybody who does the same. Okay, And that's what the state of this nation is at this point in time. Their leadership is a group of people who says, we don't need God, uh, we can do this on our own. And when he talks about, um, in, those, in those verses, he says, the time is near to build houses, the city is a pot, and we are the flesh. The idea is there is not that they're going to get cooked inside of it, but that the pot would protect them. They're saying, let's, let's, let's build what we have within our city, and let's come up with a way for us to stand on our own two feet. We don't need God. And probably what they were doing, because we see this play out, is they were probably also scheming with Egypt in order to get help. So let's not turn to God for what we need, but let's turn to our own abilities and the abilities of the world around us so that we can be saved. Now they're talking about it in the scope of their nation, but this is what most people do within the scope of their salvation. Most people do this with salvation. They say, I have the ability to stand on my own two feet and be good enough on my own, and the world will give me what I need. Okay? Um, Ken Boa writes, the world will define us by default. Do nothing, and it will fill your eyes and ears with its system of values. And that's where most people live. Most, most of us live in a state where we are just, we're just cattle following the herd. No one really actually thinks for themselves, but instead we allow the culture to define right and wrong for us. We look to our own abilities and the culture around us to define what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what will save us and what won't. The narrative that exists within the, the Western mind right now is that man is good in and of himself, that we, we don't need anything, but we're good, um, that, that God is an idea for people from the past that uh, we've progressed past that. We don't need Him, and we can define truth for ourselves. Within the Western mind of the United States, it goes even a step further. We don't even think that, that we're right because our culture says so. We just think we're right. And the ideals of right and wrong are not actually questioned, and there's no actual standard. It's just my preferences, what I think is good, and what the culture around me thinks is good. And the same thing is going on here. It's not new. And the solution remains the same. God will send someone. Therefore, verse 4, therefore that was a tough word to get out. Therefore, prophesy against them, son of man, prophesy. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Thus says the Lord, So you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. You have multiplied your slain in the city, filling the streets with them. Therefore, says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of the city are the flesh, and the city is the pot. But I will bring you out of it. You think you're safe there, but you're not. You have feared a sword, so I will bring a sword upon you, the Lord God declares. I will bring you out of the midst of the city and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you on the border of Israel, so you shall know that I am the Lord. 
This city will not be a pot for you, nor will, uh, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it, but I will judge you on the border of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord, for, I, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but you have acted according to the nations, according to the ordinances of the nations around you. So what's God have against them? He says, you stand on your own two feet. We'll be in the city and we will be safe. We'll build up a place for us and we'll be okay. We'll be good. Let's work for what we can build right here on this earth. The city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in its midst, but I will judge you on the border of Israel. I will remove you from your safe place. The place that's intended to be God's and you think is yours, I'm going to take you out of it. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances. We've talked about those two words before. Statutes is what God declares to be right and wrong. This is right, this is wrong. This is right, this is wrong. And then ordinances is this is how you live it out. And God has said, I've determined and I've told you, this is right, this is wrong, and this is how you live it. And they have rejected it. And instead, they have lived according to the nations around them. See, the people of Judah think they'd be able to save themselves, but God brings a very different message through Ezekiel. And then he dramatically proves it. Verse 13, Now it came about as I prophesied that Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, died. And I fell on my face and cried out in a loud voice and said, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? And this is the third or fourth time that he has asked that question of God. God keeps keeps showing Ezekiel how he's going to judge the nation of, of Judah, of Israel, of the city of Jerusalem. And again and again, Ezekiel says, this couldn't be how strict you really are. And God keeps showing him, yes, it is. And really what we continue to see here is that when people try to, when they say we will be able to stand on our own two feet, we're good in and of ourselves, um, and, and we'll just look to the world around us for the answers to life, and they continue to live that. And God continues to reveal himself to them, but he can, they continue to live. We're good on our own, we'll look to the world around us for answers. We're good on our own, we'll look to the world around us for answers. We're good on our own, we'll look for the, to the world around us for answers. They reach the end of that path, and what they receive is, a, is really what they've been going after the whole time, standing on their own two feet, and it turns out that the, world, the answers that the world offer don't amount to hill beans. There's no salvation. But the general belief is that we can save ourselves, both the irreligious and the religious, the theists and the atheists maintain this way of thinking. You need to understand this, that both an irreligious person, someone who says, I have no need of God, and I don't really think he even exists, an atheist, would say that I can stand on my own two feet and the culture around me will provide me with the answers that I need for life. But the the trick is, is most religious and theist people think the same thing. They just think it differently. Most religious people think that I'm good enough on my own two feet, I will work my way back to God, and the culture around me, the religious culture around me, will give me the answers that I need. 
So the atheist, the, the person who says, I have no need of God, says, I'm good on my own two feet, and I'll look not to a religious culture, but to an irreligious culture around me to give me the answers that I need for life. And a religious person looks at, looks at it and he says, I'm good on my own two feet. I'll work my way back to God and I'll look to the religious culture around me to help me determine what's right and wrong. And you can think of lots and lots of people who fit both those molds. Hopefully you don't. Because what God calls us to is not to say I can stand on my own two feet, but to a place where we say, I have nothing. I cannot save myself. I do not have the ability to save myself. I, I am in utter need of mercy and grace. I need God to take the consequences that are due to me and pay them some other way. And I need God's grace. I need Him to give me something that I don't deserve. I can't stand on my own two feet. And I'm not just going to look to a bunch of people around me to help me figure out what's right and what's wrong. It's not that people can't have influence in your life. Inevitably, they will. But ultimately, you need to allow the people that have influence in your life to be people of the Word. Boa goes on, right? So he says, The world would define us by default, do nothing, and it will fill your eyes and ears with its system of values. The Word, God's Word, the Bible, will define us only by discipline. We must choose to sit under its daily tutelage or our minds will never be renewed and transformed by its eternal values. Being a pastor, I sit down with people and they tell me their struggles. They say, I'm going through this and I'm going through that. If you're one of those people, don't worry, I'm not going to share your secrets. Um, but one of the common themes that I hear is, well, I look at the people around me and they live like this. And they say, they say that they're good and that they're, they're happy and, and they, they're, not having to, they're not having to submit to God. They're not have, they, they, they get what they want and they get to indulge their flesh. That's not the words they say, but it's what they're saying. They get to do whatever they want. And I'm here trying to do the right thing and it's difficult. And I'm not feeling like I'm as happy as the people who are just going and doing whatever they want. And my typical response is that's because your definition of happy is not a very good definition of happy. Your definition of what, what, what you're motivated to live for is off. Your motivation in, in life is to, is, to, is to please yourself. To get, what, get the most out of life that you can for you. And that motivation is no good. But instead, God calls us to a different motivation. And what we see here is that Ezekiel is living it and the people of Judah are not. Verse 14. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers and your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them are those whom the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go, go far from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. In other words, we're good right here in Jerusalem and we can have this without God. Therefore... Say, thus says the Lord God, I have removed them far away among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Here he's referencing, so you have two different viewpoints from the, from the, from the Jewish people. The Jewish people who are of the southern nation of Judah, they're saying we're better off and we must be better because God has left us in the city. And those of the northern nation who Assyria conquered, they're worse off and they must be worse because they're not in the land anymore. 
Okay, we're 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 holding God's blessings, and so we must be better than them. The notion is that God couldn't possibly meet somebody outside of Jerusalem. Verse seventeen. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God: I will gather from the peoples, I will gather you from the peoples, and assemble assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Who gets the land of Israel when this is said and done? Not the people who think they're good on their own, but the people who have learned the lesson. When they come there, they will remove all the detestable thing, things and all, of its, all its abominations from it. God is making a promise for the future. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Listen to that. Why does God save us? I will take a heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. It's almost as though God saved you for a purpose. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. So as you go through this, what you're getting here is you're getting a promise of the new covenant. This passage um, in Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 31 are three of the key passages on the promise of the new covenant, the new agreement of relationship between God and His people. Now, some people might say that you could make an acronym out of this that's fiddle. I'll go a different direction. Um, I will say shield, okay, because it's actually a word. Um, and if you do this, what you have is that God gives you, if you want to write the word shield on your handout, straight up and down, S is the Spirit of God indwelling every believer. He says, I will put my spirit within you. So the S of shield is the Spirit of God indwelling every believer. H is heart made new. God will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. The H is heart. The I in shield is intimate relationship with God. They will be my people and I will be their God. That's an amazing statement if you'd ever slowed down and thought about it. That God would remove us from rebellion, bring us into relationship, make His, his children and say... You will be my people, and I will be your God. E is every sin forgiven. He says, I will be merciful to your iniquities and remember your sins no more. Every sin forgiven. L is laws of God. The new heart is one that is motivated to walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. See, God saves us. He saves us for a purpose, and He writes His laws on our heart. He gives us this new heart, and the new heart is, not no, is no longer motivated by, I'm going to get what I'm going to get and have the best life I can get. But the new heart is motivated by, I have a God who loves me, redeemed me, restored me, brought me back into relationship with Him, and I love my Abba, my Father, so much that I long, I am motivated to walk in what He says is right and what He says is wrong, to live according to His ways and to do them. This is a transformation that takes place within the heart of the believer. We no longer walk into this life saying, what can I get out of today for me? 
But we walk into our days where we realize we have a God and Father who has loved us and saved us. He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. He redeemed us. He bought us back out of a lifestyle of sin. And He restored us into relationship with Him. He's put His Spirit within us. He's given us a new heart. He's given us intimate relationship with Him. He's, he's forgiven every single sin and He doesn't remember them anymore. And now He's written His laws on our heart. And so we're no longer motivated to say, what can I get today? But we're motivated to say, Father, Abba, Lord Jesus, how can I serve you today? This is a transformation that must take place in the heart of a Christian. If we enter our days for me, we've missed the point of what God has saved us for. The Dean shield is direct access to God. There's no need for a priest or a mediator. Jesus Christ is both. So shield, Spirit of God, heart made new, intimate relationship with God, every sin forgiven, laws of God written on our heart, and direct access to God. This is the promise that Jesus offers to each and every person. This is, this is the promise that He offers to you. If, if you're in this room and you've never wholeheartedly made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord, listen to what He's offering you. He's offering you intimate relationship with Him. He's offering to take up residence within you and give His Spirit to you. He's offering to change your heart, to change your motivation in life. This all takes place through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you confess Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you confess that God raised Him from the dead, the Scriptures say that you are a believer. You're a Christian. And when you become a Christian, it's not just that one time you rose your hand or prayed a prayer, but it's, any, it's, an, it's a lifestyle that continues on and on as God changes you. And that's the invite of the gospel. Verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. If you've forgotten where we were in this vision, or you missed last week, um, we had the vision of the wheel within a wheel and the four different angels and God's presence leaving, leaving the temple, leaving the Holy of Holies, and going to this easternmost gate of the city. And now it's leaving. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is to the east of it. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles of Chaldea. So the vision that I had seen left me. Then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So God's presence has, it's left, if you remember last week, or you weren't here, uh, the quick synopsis is that, that, that the, the nation, the uh, there was a people, a place, and an institution. The people, the group of the nation, the, the group of the people that made up the nation, they were intended to belong to God. So there was a people, there was a place, which was the city of Jerusalem, and within the city there was a specific place within the temple where God's presence was understood to dwell. Okay? So there was a people, there was a place, and there was an institution, an entire nation. All three of those were intended to be God's. All three of those had rejected God. 
And at the end of 340 years of God being rejected and God being rejected and God being rejected and God being rejected, we finally reach a point where he stands in and he says, the end of this path is today and I am removing myself from your presence. So this is a sad state of life for the nation of Judah, of Israel, and it's a vision for eternity. It's a vision of eternity for those who reject God. You need to get this. This is a sad state of life for the nation of Judah, but it's also a vision of eternity for those who reject God. When we reach the end of our lives, I will agree with the statement that all paths lead to God. The problem is not all those paths lead to salvation and relationship with God. At the end of our lives, you will stand before your Maker. Every path leads to Him. But the, uh, that path will, will, will then go one of two directions. And then what the Scriptures reveal is that those who have sought after God and longed to be His child and trusted Him receive that relationship in eternity with Him. And those who reject Him and push Him away and say, I'll stand on my own two feet they received that as well. One of the guys I love to listen to, his name is Chip Ingram, he, he says that, uh, that, that the, the, the illusion of happiness here on earth is, is truly, it's truly an illusion. The idea that you could be happy without God is smoke and mirrors. What happens at the end of our lives is we stand before God and we're sent a different direction if we've pushed him away and pushed him away and pushed him away. And what Ingram says is the difference between now and life without God and there and life without God is there and life without God has no Coors Light in football. There's no distraction. There is no smoke. There are no mirrors. There's just the brutal reality that you don't have God. Cold reality. Cold reality. Or hot. Hannah said it well last week. You didn't know I was going to talk about you, Hannah. Hannah said it well last week. She was sharing that, uh, that when, we, when the students went to the Czech Republic, uh, the leader of the group over there that uh, leads the exit tour, his name is Yenya. And Yenya was telling us in one of the long car rides, he said, look, you can be bold with these people because odds are you're never going to see them again. And, and that, that kind of did embolden us to say, you know what, you're right. I don't have anything to lose here. I'm just going to go for it. And what Hannah said, she said, I hope... We do see them again because we're playing for keeps. And I love that. We're playing for keeps. See, you have lots and lots of relationships, places of influence within your life where you know people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has strategically placed you in those relationships so that you could be Ezekiel. You could share the good news. You could see the vision of what's to come for those who don't know God and do something about it. Not that you can save anyone, but you can share a message that does. And so Christians, you need to realize we are called to a purpose so that we would know His ordinances, walk in His ordinances, and do them. One of the things that God has saved you for, Christian, is the proclamation of the gospel. Walk in that ordinance, live that statute, do it. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid. Share the good news. What have you got to lose? The answer is eternity with somebody you care about. Go for it. 
So those two questions, how does one get saved? The clear answer of the scriptures is we do not get saved by standing on our own two feet and looking to the world around us. That is a clear answer from the scriptures. You will never stand on your own two feet and look to the culture around you and find salvation. You can find smoke and mirrors and you can find varying answers and maybe something that feels like happiness. But you will never find salvation by standing on your own two feet and looking to the culture around you. And then the second question, do all paths lead to God? And the answer is yes. But that moment before God where you stand there, the, the scriptures also clearly lay out that those who have longed to be his child and trusted him will be in eternity. And those who have longed to be his foe and stiff-armed him in eternity will be. The question is on which side of God do you want to stand? Jesus told the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? What do you want to be? One of his sheep, trusting, following, not perfect, but learning. Or one of the goats, fighting, kicking, running away. Who are you? And if you're one of his sheep, realize that God has saved you for a purpose, that you would walk in his ordinances and do them by the power of his spirit for the purpose of his glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, your word is good. Uh, you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed right and wrong. You have revealed... Uh, good and bad, you have revealed that we are in great need of you. You have revealed that I could never say I did enough. I could never say that I learned enough from the world around me. I could never say I'm good enough and I've learned enough I can save myself. But instead, what you've revealed is that we need your mercy. We need you to remove the consequences that are due to us and place them on someone else. You did so with your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We also need your grace. We need you to give us something that we could never earn, something that we could never possess on our own, and you've done that. You've given us relationship with you. You've given us direct access to you. You've given us your spirit indwelling our hearts. You've given us a, a new heart, a new set of motivations. God, your grace is so big. And so I pray that we would be Christians who live in the new covenant, that live in the new relationship that your Son, our Lord Jesus, has secured. Not trusting in our own abilities and not looking to the world around us, but fixing our eyes on you and running that race of faith as we learn to trust you more and more each day. And if there are those in the room who do not know that relationship, God, I pray that you would tug on the strings of their heart and that they would respond to you and that they would talk to someone about that. In Jesus' name, amen.